Hello, and welcome to Geopolitics on the Move. I'm Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB podcast. I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor of Russia and Global Affairs. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The initial shocks of the coronavirus pandemic are waning, and global life is slowly getting back on track. Though change in response to COVID is inevitable, there's a growing sense that everything will continue as before, but only worse. The list of geopolitical challenges is intensifying. Nationalism, the clash of identities, the fragmentation of the world economy, and the erosion of the liberal economic model. As do the responses, demands for greater sovereignty, dismantling arms control regimes, and escalating competition among major powers, especially between the United States and China. COVID-19 didn't create any of these. It only reinforced them. Perhaps the pandemic's most profound impact will be on relations between people, society, and the state. The era of universalism is receding. The time of fragmentation and selfishness has arrived. Nationalism, in the broad sense, has returned. This worldview is already widespread, and the COVID-19 pandemic has normalized it. What does international cooperation look like during the triumph of national interests? Is it possible to realize these interests without interaction? We turn to Andrei Kortunov, uh, Director General of the Russian International Affairs Council, and Anatol Levin, Professor of Georgetown University in Qatar, for their insight. Just to start our conversation, I'd like to just have go around and have everybody introduce themselves. So, Andre, why don't you start? Well, my name is Andre Kortunov, uh, and I'm working for the Russian International Affairs Council, which is a think tank in Moscow. Um, I'm Anatole Levin. I used to be a British journalist in South Asia and the former Soviet Union and Russia. Then I was at think tanks, and um, now I teach at Georgetown University. Dan, I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, editor of Russian Global Affairs Journal. Great. So our discussion today is going, going to be a very broad discussion about issues of nationalism, national identity, and national interests. And uh, the first question I have is, you know, we've seen... Um, a kind of resurgence of issues and of national identity, national interests, um, a breakdown of international institutions to a large extent. So I, th I thought we'd start by just having each of you speak about what some of those, what this resurgence of national identity and interest means and its relationship to broader issues of nationalism. So Anatole, do you want to start? You know, th these are extremely complex issues. I mean, nationalism, the basic definition of nationalism is easy. You know, it is a primary attachment and loyalty to the country from which you come, uh, you know, as opposed to not cancelling out, but taking primacy over other allegiances and loyalties. Um, and national identity, uh, well, I suppose would be, once again, at its, at its simplest. Um, you know, if you are asked what you are, uh, your first answer is, I am Russian or British or Italian or whatever. Um, I mean, these are extremely simplistic definitions, but nonetheless. Well, you know, uh, as a person uh, who is old enough uh, to get his education in the former Soviet Union, uh, I know that uh, nationalism uh, is bad. It is associated with bourgeois uh, societies, uh, but not with socialist societies. And uh, there is a very clear distinction between nationalism and patriotism, because you can be attached to your country you can like your country, you can feel some kind of identity, but it does not necessarily turn you into a nationalist. 
only if you put your country above the rest of the world. If you are ready uh, to accept uh, 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 that your country might uh, protect uh, its uh, interests uh, to the detriment of other international players, only that makes you a nationalist. And, uh, of course, uh, if you get back uh, to the Soviet days, uh, uh, we usually argued that uh, uh, instead of bourgeois nationalism, typical for Western societies, uh, what we have in the Soviet Union uh, is a proletarian internationalism, which clearly uh, uh, means that uh, the Soviet Union uh, claimed uh, to be a universal empire, or at least a universal structure open to all nations uh, and all ethnic groups of the world. If, if I could cut in, uh, all this sounds very American to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, let me, let me just interfere here. I think that uh, uh, we usually, at least sometimes, uh, we forget uh, that uh, empires uh, are never nationalistic because empires are about a mission. Uh, it's about something which is superior uh, to day-to-day national interests. If you take uh, the Austrian Empire, for example, uh, it found its legitimacy in the protection of Europe against uh, uh, Turkish uh, uh, Turkish uh, interventionism. Uh, if you take uh, the the U.S. Empire, if you can call it an empire, definitely there is a manifest uh, destiny. Uh, you know, there is a mission civilisatrice for the French Empire. So imperial structures are seldom nationalistic. They cannot afford nationalism in many ways. Uh, Fyodor, do you want to jump in and comment yeah, or question? Yes, I, uh, yes, I do. Uh, first of all, I think uh, uh, we discuss nationalism now or, or all those uh, issues related to nationalism uh, in a very particular uh, historical moment because a rise of uh, nationalism today, whatever we, uh, however we understand it, is actually a very strong reaction to the relatively long period of uh, uh, cosmopolitanism and internationalism in liberal understanding, which uh, was dominating international uh, environment since uh, maybe uh, 1980s. And uh, the, that period when Soviet Union started to erode and then collapse, the American, uh, however, empire or republic or whatever, uh, started to rise. And that period was uh, quite unique. The nationalism uh, and everything connected to that were understood uh, not just as a bad thing, but as a wrong thing, a completely wrong thing on the wrong side of history, to quote uh, American leaders uh, uh, from uh, different periods. And uh, now this nationalism, on the one hand, we see all bad connotations uh, which, uh, which uh, are wrote it in history. But at the same time, uh, I think nationalism today is perceived by many not only chauvinistically uh, minded people, but, but uh, so to say, uh, more positively minded people, uh, and this is, is understood as something which should be, which should replace the failed or failing uh, global system. And in this regard, uh, I would like to ask Anatole, uh, you, you, wrote, you wrote a great book uh, several years ago about American nationalism. And how it can be combined, how it, how it works together, the uh, United States as an exceptional uh, multi-supranational uh, body and very much nationalistic society. But what, what does it mean, the uh, nationalism in the United States? Well, well, thank you, thank you uh, for your, your kind words. I mean, in the book, uh, I drew um, a distinction between two kinds of American nationalism, and I have said more recently that, that these two kinds were perfectly expressed in the election campaign of 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And I talked about American civic nationalism uh, in a sense 
formerly American official nationalism, which uh, was indeed multi-ethnic, non-ethnic, uh, and considered itself like the French, uh, or in other ways like the old Chinese or Roman empires, to be the bearer uh, of universal ideals for the whole of mankind. But, you know, if you look at somebody like Hillary Clinton, there's absolutely no doubt in their minds that America embodied all these ide- these universal ideals. And they said so, you know, quite openly, you know, America stands taller, America is the universal nation, um, the indispensable nation. Uh, and, of course, that American power and American interests are indistinguishable from those of humanity in general or any other country. Uh, So, I mean, this is civic nationalism, but with a a very strong uh, civilizing mission, imperial mission, uh, which, of course, is in some ways admirable in its ideological content, but as we know, also brings very severe problems with it. Uh, But on the other hand, and you know, I've always said from this point of view, uh, there is nothing new about Trump. I mean, he, he is more powerful than such figures previously, at least for a long time. But he's not new, because back in two thousand four, I wrote about this other tradition in American nationalism, uh, which um, is not, of course, strictly ethnic or ethno-religious uh, in the European sense, uh, but is related to that. You know, the sense that democracy is only for Americans, white Americans, that no other peoples, you know, either deserve or can exercise democracy. You know, you see a lot of this in Samuel Huntingdon. These are specifically white Anglo-Saxon American ideas. Um, and uh, that... Uh, you know, America is, of course, better than anywhere else, but uh, America should not try to, um, you know, missionize other places because, frankly, they don't deserve it. And America should look out for itself, defend itself. So, I mean, both of these traditions exist within America. Usually they're opposed, but sometimes, of course, they they come together in a curious way, as they did in the Bush administration after 9-11, where you had a very strange combination um, of this idea that America was going to bring freedom and democracy to the Middle East, to the whole of the world, but coupled, you know, you didn't have to dig very far, you know, under the surface with many Bush supporters with the most intense chauvinism, you know, hatred and contempt for most of the rest of the world. So it's a a very complex um, form of nationalism because it's a very complex country but uh, you can also see you know a similar contrast in certain respects in the, the different strands of nationalism in France since the French Revolution and also in in India between on the one hand the civic nationalism of Jawaharlal Nehru and on the other hand um, this uh, once again old tradition of Hindu nationalism but which has of course become much more powerful under Narendra Modi. Well, I think that uh, definitely uh, if you look at Russia, uh, there are some similarities historically. And I think that Russia has always been split uh, uh, between the shining city on the hill on the one hand uh, and uh, manifest destiny on the other. Uh, And there has always been a contradiction uh, between ethnic nationalism uh, and uh, this imperial nationalism. I think that uh, traditionally the imperial nationalism has been much stronger in Russia because of of its ethnic, uh, cultural, and uh, to some extent even religious composition. Uh, But uh, the struggle goes on, uh, and uh, it's not clear in what direction the country is moving, because on the one hand, uh, uh, indeed, uh, uh, there is a concept of Eurasianism, and, you know, something like, you know, Slavic-Turkish alliance or whatever it might be. But on the other hand, uh, if you look at the current uh, changes uh, in the Constitution, uh, definitely the ethnic factor is uh, emphasized there much more than it was before. So there is uh, a trend uh, towards a more uh, traditional ethnic or ethnic cultural nationalism reflected in the new version of the Russian constitution. But let me also say that uh, when we are talking about nationalism and we have some kind of condescending attitude, I think a lot really depends on uh, 
and what we compare nationalism to. Uh, for example, many scholars uh, working on the Middle East now tell us that uh, civic nationalism, uh, statism, Arab nationalism is uh, much better than what is going to replace it in the Middle East, which is um, likely to be uh, religious fundamentalism. So in certain ways, nationalism might be not a part of the problem, but rather a part of the solution. Yeah, if, if, if I may, so since um, Andre brought us to, 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 to Russia, I think that, that there is a very complicated and interesting case, because uh, this year, uh, we uh, remember uh, remembered uh, in June uh, 30 years anniversary of uh, adoption of uh, uh, declaration. What was the name? Declaration of National Sovereignty of Russian Federation. That was a year and a half before Soviet Union collapsed, and was still part uh, of uh, of the Union, but. Uh, Russian Federation, as many other republics in, inside the uh, Soviet Union, decided to emphasize the sovereignty. Uh, no, no one exactly understood at that time what, what did it mean, but, but still. And I think that uh, the uh, ambivalent approach towards nationalism, uh, both in uh, narrow and broader sense uh, in, in today's Russia, is partially connected to the fact that Soviet Union was uh, actually destroyed uh, and eliminated not by Baltic states or Georgia or Azerbaijan, uh, republics uh, which struggled for independence, but it was uh, caused by decision of a Russian Federation political establishment both those on the progressive side, Yeltsin uh, and others, and those on the conservative side, communists, both decided that they should, uh, they should be, so to say, on, on their own. And this decision was uh, crucial and fatal for the Soviet Union. Uh, Baltics or, or Georgia or even Ukraine without Russian decision, would never be able to destroy the Soviet Union. And that, that was historical fact. While now, we try to, so to say, revise uh, history by saying that Russia was always in favor of keeping Soviet Union, while those other republics, they destroyed it. And I think it's, it's a very deep contradiction in... in uh, uh, consciousness, which basically is still uh, there's a struggle inside. But I, I would say that nation, nationalistic part of mind is uh, is winning gradually. Um, th this goes to it. I, I want to stay on, on Russia for a little bit longer, um, because this is something that, you know, nationalism in Russia is as both, you know, you've you pointed out so far, it has full of all sorts of contradictions. You know, Russia has always been a multi-ethnic state. Uh, it's never been a nation state. And even in the new constitution, uh, there is a, a re-emphasis on its multinational character. Um, and, and so much so that ethno-nationalism has been viewed as a danger. Even in the imperial period, it was viewed as an danger, mostly from ethnic minorities. But also, you know, outside of the period of Alexander III, you don't have a really strong Russian ethno-nationalism. So Talk a bit more about, and I'd like to get Anatole's views on this, on Russian nationalism too. Talk about the, the complexity of Russian nationalism and what it means for the Russian state. Uh, well, well, I think there's one interesting parallel with America, um, which came out very strongly in the end of the Soviet Union. And that is precisely the tension between the imperial mission and its costs. And, of course, the costs of the United States have not been, you know, the tiniest fraction of the sacrifices that the Russian people have had to make for different kinds of, of empire. So on the one hand, you have this imperial project, character, you know, held by the rulers, held by the ruling elites. And then, of course, you have the population which has to, to, to pay for this. And certainly in the end of the Soviet Union and the, the, um, the, the rise of... Um, Russian sovereignty, this 
resentment, this idea that, that Russia, Russians were sacrificing their interests for the sake of, of East Europeans, Central Asians, and so forth and so on, was very strong, at least in my memory, as I remember it. Uh, and of course, this is something you see tremendously in, in America under Trump as well. You know, the, the, this feeling that um, it's going to be America first, because America has sacrificed itself constantly for these, you know, international liberal projects. So I could see, you know, rather an interesting parallel there. Um, Of course, in Russia, um, you're absolutely right that uh, ethnic, open ethnic nationalism only became dominant uh, for a a couple of decades uh, after the um, uh, 1880s, as the regime basically desperately tried to to find a program to gain mass support against the, the revolutionaries, as elsewhere in Europe. Uh, but of course, the um, a, a certain Russian ethnic feeling of resentment uh, against. Well, certainly the way in which the imperial project recruited you know, all those Germans, like my ancestors, <laughs> the, remember the famous anecdote of Yarmolov and so forth, and indeed much of um, Voynay Mir, um, you know, that, that, uh, that was always there. So, I mean, it is interesting, I think, the parallel with America, because, you, you know, you, you have feelings which are, in fact, very old, uh, but... Um, at certain moments in history, they surge up and become dominant, uh, hopefully only for a, a while. Well, uh, I do not disagree with uh, Anatoly. I think, indeed, uh, Russia always uh, had problems uh, with uh, ethnic nationalism or uh, even with the cultural or religious nationalism, because Russia is not just an orthodox country. Uh, but also an Islamic state and uh, also uh, a Buddhist state and so on and so forth. Uh, And uh, if we look back into history, if we look uh, back on who actually built the Russian state, especially during the imperial period, uh, uh, these were not necessarily ethnic Russians. Uh, Definitely Germans played a very important role uh, in uh, building the Russian state. Tatars... Uh, turned out to be a major state-building nations. Uh, I should mention, of course, uh, Caucasian uh, nations like uh, Georgians uh, and uh, and Armenians, uh, Jews, and so on and so forth. Uh, therefore, uh, to some extent, uh, I think uh, that uh, ethnic nationalism in its pure form uh, is uh, not going to fly in Russia. Uh, Russia will never become as homogeneous as, uh, for example, Poland. Uh, or, or Finland, uh, uh, or you know any other uh, standard "quote unquote" European state. Uh, however, I think uh, it doesn't really solve uh, the Russian problem because uh, uh, Russia, even now, uh, appears uh, to be a country which is uh, still looking for a mission, uh, for a mission which is bigger than pure defense of uh, its immediate uh, national interests. Uh, and uh, this concept of uh, greatness uh, is still deeply rooted in the Russian psyche, and that allowed uh, Mr. Putin uh, to forge uh, the so-called uh, Crimea consensus with the Russian society. Uh, so from this uh, viewpoint, uh, uh, indeed, uh, I think uh, uh, Russia still has uh, not only a positivist approach to its interests, but also kind of holistic uh, attitude, uh, which is not uh, dissimilar uh, from uh, uh, countries like India or even the United States. Uh, And uh, it's an open question uh, where it will lead uh, the Russian state uh, to, uh, because uh, it's it's extremely difficult to balance uh, this uh, still very vibrant uh, imperial uh, ambitions of the country uh, and uh, the need uh, uh, to pursue uh, its uh, immediate national interests, which clearly do not uh, fully coincide with the imperial amb- uh, ambitions of the country. If I may, uh, I think uh, Andre touched upon an extremely important issue, which is uh, uh, the work in progress is changing. Yes, indeed, uh, we uh, got used to perceive Russia as a, as a country, as a nation, as a society, 
which is very much focused on uh, this greatness idea, grandeur. Uh, it's correct. And the uh, Crimean uh, moment, uh, six years ago, was another uh, very successful manifestation that uh, this kind of success, um, external success, fundamentally useful in uh, consolidating society and uh, uh, maybe uh, pursuing a particular policy. Now, I heard already uh, from a couple of colleagues an interesting description that now we are witnessing an anti-Crimean anti moment when uh, those kind of events, even if something might happen or, or be, might be discussed, uh, will not serve at all uh, the purpose of uh, addressing uh, people's uh, needs and interests because Russia, as all other countries around the globe, are more and more focused on how to sustain domestically, how to, how to guarantee uh, development and sustainability and resilience of, of uh, uh, own, own state and own society. Which mean, and, and I think we see it everywhere, uh, in particular in the United States, when uh, foreign policy of the United States uh, turns to be completely uh, complete function of domestic processes. And I think th this is such a profound change in the international environment that in years to come, we will see completely different uh, landscape with all countries, starting from small ones uh, to biggest ones, uh, trying to, uh, to uh, cap capitalize on or to use uh, uh, the world to address domestic issues. And that means that foreign policy might become extremely, how to say it, uh, unlinear, nonlinear and strange. Everywhere. Well, you know, there have been suggestions, open suggestions in uh, in, in America. Um, Robert Kahane, for example, in Foreign Affairs, um, that you can pull a deeply divided American society back together again through, I mean, call it what you will. I mean, in, in international mission. He, he, of course, doesn't talk about nationalism, but others might. I mean, it is a fascinating question for the future, you know, whether this, this classical maneuver of unifying the country domestically through international, well, whatever, adventures, rivalries, um, whether this will still be used and whether this will still work. Um, certainly, I mean, as things stand in the USA, uh, one can't, but be struck, as various people have pointed out, by the you know astonishing unity with you know given the disunity about everything else um, with which the um, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have plunged back into the idea of a Cold War with China, for example. You know, very much phrased not just in terms of uh, American interests, but but also America's mission and the superiority of America's political and indeed moral system and so forth and so on. So um, it's, I mean, that, that will be a great question for the, you know, for the next generation, um, wh whether, you know, regimes around the world uh, will continue to use this, th this strategy uh, to diminish domestic discontent. Um, uh, and if so, whether it will work. But I, I certainly agree that um, we're in for a very, very interesting and, um, you know, non-linear time in the, the the years to come um th this goes to something that in in, in the conversations Fiora and i have been been having uh the the pre-world war one period comes up as a analogy for our, our current times um because you know following what you said anatole and and Fyodor, you know the pre in pre-world war one the competition between great powers was based in you know an imperialist rivalry amongst capitalist states where nationalism played this crucial role in consolidating domestic society right and then with after world war ii and with the cold war you have the decline of nationalism in the core and nationalism becomes more a a, a state building 
um, ideology for the decolonizing world. But now with the Cold War, without that giant, you know, overarching ideological struggle, uh, my question is, is, is that, is this, it will nationalism come back as the ideological underpinning of a new inter-imperialist rivalry? If I may just add uh, one phrase to this question, uh, to both Andre and Anatole. Do you see a confrontation between U.S. and China as a clash of national nationalisms? Well, let, let, me, let me try to, to, to address the question. Uh, and I think that there is at least one major difference between the situation today and the situation 100 years ago. Uh, 100 years ago, uh, many people, especially in the quote-unquote civilized world, uh, also had multiple identities. Uh, I uh, could be a scholar, I could be a city dweller, I could be a male, I could uh, uh, be a Christian. But I think the difference uh, between uh, a situation, the situation 100 years ago and the situation today is that 100 years ago there was a clear hierarchy of identities. And of course, uh, uh, identity linked to a particular nation was the organizing identity in very many cases. Uh, that's why uh, national mobilization uh, was possible. That's why big wars were possible. Sacrifices of a major scale were also possible. Uh, today, we have more identities than we had uh, 100 years ago. Uh, but it's not uh, the only difference. The difference is that uh, there is no, at least in my view, there is no uh, the, the former hierarchy of identities. Now, a person uh, uh, working uh, on IT somewhere in Novosibirsk uh, might feel that uh, he belongs to the society of the Silicon Valley more than he belongs uh, to the apartment block in his own city. And that's why I think it would be very difficult uh, to restore nationalism uh, in its uh, classical form uh, and to put back the whole hierarchy of uh, uh, identities which allows states to uh, seek uh, sacrifices uh, and uh, uh, um, major contributions uh, by citizens. And uh, from this viewpoint, uh, I am not sure that we will see a clash of uh, the two uh, nationalisms, uh, the Chinese and the U.S. Uh, nationalisms, in years to come. I think uh, the 21st century, in this sense, uh, is uh, it is not a completely flat society, but uh, it is uh, much flatter uh, than uh, uh, than the world wars a uh, hundred or uh, two hundred years ago. And, and of course, it's it's vastly less militarized um, as. As much in China as in the West, um, you know, you, you, it would be very, very difficult to get, you know, ordinary people to make anything like the sacrifices that um, Europeans during the First World War were prepared to make. Yeah, yeah. and uh, one can argue that nationalism again, uh, its hype was during the period of uh, industrialization, uh, and uh, definitely uh, in a post-industrial society. In the postmodern world, uh, nationalism has to compete uh, with so many other ideas, so many other identities. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it will win in this competition. There is, however, I mean, clearly a very great effort, um, uh, you know, with, with considerable public resonance, it must be said, uh, on the part of the Chinese regime uh, to exploit this. Um, and of course, you do have. I mean, a, a lot of this is pure theatre or even farce, but, you know, you do have a powerful and growing parties in Western Europe and, of course, Eastern Europe, Hungary, Poland, uh, which want to try to evoke that spirit, I mean, in, in name, if not in reality. Does this mean, in, in based on both of your comments, do, do you get a sense then, and I was, I was struck by Anatole's mention of parody, that this is this reassurgence of nationalism is more a kind of I wouldn't say last gasp, but a desperate gasp of trying to um, 
reconstitute the fragmentation that Andre is speaking about in terms of identities? Well, we don't know how things will go in future. You know, the coronavirus has come completely out of left field. Um, the 2008 financial crisis in a different way um, came out of left field, at least as far as, as far as the economists were concerned. And of course, then, you know, the, there are all the warnings about um, climate change in future. Um, if, you know, if societies come under intense pressure, uh, we don't know in what way, you know, along which lines they will crack or how they will respond. Um, you, you know, in, in certain respects, you know, especially climate change, we haven't, or automation, we haven't faced anything quite like this previously. So um, I, I think it would be, it would be unwise to, you know, to make any very, you know, very definite predictions about which way things will go. I would also add to that that uh, probably we should uh, distinguish between uh, uh, triumphant nationalism, uh, which was very typical in the 19th century, and uh, for Central European states uh, it uh, was clearly back after after 1989, uh, and frustrated nationalism, defensive nationalism, nationalism which uh, is a kind of last resort uh, in the fight against globalization. I think that uh, right now, definitely we see more of this uh, frustrated nationalism than the triumphant one. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. Uh, defensive and frustrated nationalism is certainly uh, in place, but uh, can, can we expect that defensive nationalism at the end will be triumphant? Because... What we see as a result of many uh, different uh, trends in uh, recent years, there is a clear uh, transformation of global economic and financial system. Okay, less, uh, less so financial, but economic system. And fragmentation, which was caused not so much by countries like Russia, China, Iran, or who, who, you name it, but uh, first of all, by uh, changing mood in uh, countries which promoted uh, liberal globalization mostly. Uh, first of all, United States and United Kingdom. And that means that uh, the whole uh, economic basis for uh, globalization will change inevitably. And then this defensive nationalism uh, will be the leading uh, ideology, isn't it? I, I think that's that's a very important point um, because sometimes this is obscured, at least in you know the language within Europe. Um, you know the, the National Front in France, Alternative for Deutschland. I'm not so sure about the Poles or the Hungarians, but you know they're not the old style nationalists. You know none of these people in Germany are, are dreaming of of going out to reconquer. Kaliningrad or Silesia, it is indeed very, very, it's very resentful, it's very nasty in many ways, but it is, uh, it, it is defensive, it's, the, the, it's a besieged kind of um, nationalism, uh, you, not an imperialist one. Well, I just want to add, and uh, it's a little bit, uh, it's a slippery slope, but nevertheless, I think that uh, what is often perceived uh, as uh, very clear manifestations of uh, the Russian revisionism uh, in Europe or elsewhere, uh, uh, is regarded uh, uh, in Moscow as a set of uh, purely defensive measures. So it's it's also considered to be a defense against those who uh, try to destroy status quo, who uh, try to somehow uh, create a, a situation in which uh, uh, Russia uh, will be in jeopardy and uh, uh, probably... Uh, uh, will not be a will not be able to survive. So, in a sense, uh, it's a kind of uh, defense against future. Um, you know, the, going back to this this internalization, this internal focus of the of nationalism, and I, I and this defensiveness and or grievance nationalism that we're seeing. You know, the, the coronavirus pandemic has proven that the nation state 
still serves as a primary political entity. And this goes against a lot of the rhetoric from, say, the 1990s that was, you know, some of the most idealists was was promoting the idea of the withering away of the nation state. Um, and, and what we've seen over time in the last 10, 15 years is, is a crisis of international institutions. So where does this internal grievance nationalism put uh, international institutions and international cooperation? I mean, international cooperation, I mean, it is, is taking a, a, a bad blow from geopolitics principally, um, you know, especially, of course, Russian, American, European dissonance, and now American, Chinese dissonance, and so on. Um, but uh, I've, you know, just written a book about climate change and the nation state, and I point out that, you know, all these international agreements were, you know, very useful, very necessary, uh, but in themselves, totally pointless, unless the states which sign up to them can not not just are willing to implement the measures concerned, uh, but of course are also capable of doing it, which so many states around the world are not. They're simply too weak. So I, I think this whole, um, you know, the language of the withering away of the state, of course, a very Marxist language, one must note, um, strangely adopted by very un-Marxist institutions like The Economist, um, was always from that point of view truly weird um that there you know there was never a chance that major states around the world were going to surrender really significant sovereign powers to anything like the united nations i mean only the european union came anywhere like that and even that is now in in serious trouble so i, I always found that there was a, a strange emptiness and unreality at the heart of uh, of this language of the uh, at least i mean not when it came to of course the fact that uh, the states have been weakened above all by you know the ease of tax evasion and international money transfers um but the idea that international institutions would substitute for the state i mean the only places where i saw international institutions trying to do that um were places like afghanistan and somalia where the state had collapsed and um i, I never saw those as terribly good models i must say for the future of government well if i might uh, push the envelope a little bit further i think that uh, the apparent uh, weakness and fragility of international organizations uh, clearly reflects uh, weakness and fragility of nation states because all these strong states can afford uh, strong international institutions, we all know that we need. We all know that we need more international cooperation in confronting coronavirus and other global problems. But states are so weak, and uh, their ruling coalitions within states uh, are so fragile that uh, they simply cannot afford strong institutions. And uh, look at the United States. Uh, I think that uh, a split uh, the United States uh, cannot be a strong international player, a player that would uh, provide the leadership and uh, a player that would uh, start building international organizations. Uh, I think that when states argue that we cannot really sacrifice our national sovereignty, suggests that uh, uh, they are not confident in themselves. Uh, they uh, believe that... Uh, you know, a United Nations can present a real challenge uh, to their sovereignty. You know, that's not serious. I think that uh, what we saw during this crisis, among other things, as though, though you know, the public societies uh, instinctively uh, try to uh, uh, somehow uh, uh, get back to states, but states are not in a position to provide. And that is the reality. I think uh, when we talk about international institutions, and uh, I absolutely agree that uh, institutions created uh, consecutively in the second half of 20th century were absolutely great and uh, manifested maybe even culmination of uh, history of international relations, but uh, they were very much connected to the so-called liberal world order which started to emerge in the west uh, after second world war and then uh, it was an attempt 
to extrapolate it to the whole world after collapse of the Soviet Union, but it failed for many reasons, which we can discuss another time. And now we are moving beyond that. And together with uh, liberal world order, we are losing uh, institutions created at that time. They worked pretty well or uh, excellent uh, during the Cold War, and maybe it was an attempt to adapt them to the post-Cold War situation, but it will not work any again in the future. And that means that those states, which, yes, are challenged by so many uh, different threats and, and risks, they maybe they even would love to uh, appeal to institutions, but they see that institutions are failing. And that's, that's I think, a quite, quite a risky and dangerous situation because everybody, at the end of the day, will come to conclusion that each state, each nation should primarily rely on itself with all consequences uh, for international relations as well. Well, you know, I have a question to a few other. You know, <laughs> uh, suppose this is uh, the future that we all have to face. Uh, suppose uh, international institutions uh, and multilateralism as such uh, is not going to work. Uh, but uh, given the growing pressures uh, on the humankind, uh, we're likely uh, to see a number of um, major, major crises ahead. Uh, it uh, might be related to security or to development uh, uh, or, you know, to resources, uh, to environment, you name it. Uh, so it means uh, that uh, some degree of international cooperation uh, will be needed and some uh, structures to manage this uh, uh, cooperation are likely to be indispensable. Now, if uh, uh, states uh, are not going to follow this path, uh, if uh, they do not replicate the system which they themselves destroyed uh, in the beginning of the 21st century, then what kind of international system we will have? Uh, because uh, I think that uh, we are moving to a very dangerous situation, which might be lethal, not just uh, for the international system, but for the humankind at large. Certainly, we're moving towards much uh, less predictable and more dangerous system. Uh, it's undeniable. The question is, Andre, you, you, you mentioned uh, institutions and multilateralism as something connected. I think what we are moving uh, uh, towards, and maybe it uh, can serve as some kind of, uh, uh, how to say it, uh, to mean to, uh, some kind of mean to, to uh, uh, decrease uh, risks. Uh, there is this connection between institutions and multilateral approach. Multilateralism, as we uh, know it from uh, the global period, uh, was actually uh, every, everybody, all countries are working together inside certain institutions. But multilateralism might be different as well. Particular amount, a particular number of countries, three, two, uh, no, not two, three, four, ten, uh, come together to address a particular issue. And as long as they need to address this issue, they are together, then they reconfigure that to something else. This is multilateralism as well, and I, I, I guess that for the next period it might be more uh, instrumental than uh, uh, attempt to come back to old institutions. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, ad hoc internationalism as opposed to institutionalized internationalism. The problem is, of course, that um, you know, as we've seen between Russia and the United States, um, again and again, I heard while I was in Washington and after that, that um, oh, you know, uh, America can deal with Russia on a case-to-case -case basis. Uh, you know, we can do more or less what we like with Ukraine and Georgia and NATO expansion and 
in the Middle East. And then, you know, we can negotiate on a cooperative basis with Russia on other issues. Well, of course, the problem is it doesn't work like that in, in reality. Um, you know, if countries seriously annoy themselves in one, annoy each other, you know, in, in one important area, it's going to make it very difficult, you know, genuinely to cooperate in other areas, uh, unless, of course, um, the international crisis becomes so deep and catastrophic um, that it more or less forces people together and it dwarfs you know, all the other issues. Uh, but um, a, a crisis that deep would risk, of course, um, destroying states and the entire international system because, uh, of course, many people, myself included, um, if we had been able to look forward to the coronavirus, you know, would have said, oh, you know, this must promote international cooperation. This must show how, you know, this this threat is so much greater than, you know, the strategic threats that China and the USA supposedly pose to each other. Um, unfortunately, of course, <laughs> that is not the way things have worked out um, since the pandemic began between the USA and China. Well, you know, I think that uh, the situation in the world today, to some extent, uh, resembles the situation in early 1990s in the former Soviet Union. And I mean specifically the economic reform, when the decision was made that old institutions to manage the Soviet economy were bad, not very efficient, and uh, we should let the market decide. Uh, so the Russian state uh, started uh, privatization, assuming that... Uh, uh, you know, that private uh, players uh, will take care of the economic growth. But what happened, uh, uh, private actors were able to, uh, to appropriate uh, assets, but they were not ready to take uh, the responsibilities, uh, the public commons. And I think that uh, this uh, multilateralism a la carte uh, might indeed be better than no multilateralism at all, uh, but I'm not sure that it will resolve the problems uh, of the scale that we are going to confront within next couple of decades. And that makes me uh, uh, worry about uh, the future. Though, of course, uh, let me emphasize once again that uh, if uh, uh, there are uh, opportunities for project-based multilateralism, uh, it is definitely better than nothing. Uh, and, and this actually goes to my, my last question, and that is about the globalization in economic sense. Because as we, as you know, all three of you had said, you, you do get this retrenchment back to the nation state, a breakdown of international institutions, etc. But we, the world is still very much economically integrated. Um, so what challenges do you see towards the economic globalization that the rise, the return of the, you know, this inward movement of states and a, a rise of nationalism poses? I think that, uh, you know, unless things get catastrophically bad, uh, we're not, pray God, going to see a, you know, a return to the 1930s of, you know, trade barriers getting so high that they actually cripple the entire international trading system. I mean, as you say, I think we're too uh, we are too integrated for that. I mean, undoubtedly, you will see more protectionism. You'll see, you know, more support for particular, you know, what are regarded as key areas of the economy. Uh, I mean, another issue, though, is whether, and I mean, this is very salient indeed, if if you read what, you know, and people in the, you know, in the European Union Commission structures and so forth have begun to say, um, is the old, old dilemma of whether states can control their own elites sufficiently to raise revenue from them. You know, this is a, a dilemma going back at least, you know, as far as ancient Rome. Um, you know, and the, the ability of the Roman elites to evade taxes was one of the reasons for the collapse of the empire. Um, now, you know, and also, of course, this, this is based not just by a desire for revenue, which is going to get even stronger as a result of the pandemic crisis, but also, of course, a tremendous and very understandable wave of resentment on the part of taxpaying populations. Um, so I think that will be the first challenge, um, whether states will actually be able to, to claw back control over their own revenues. And that is very much a, a, an open question, because uh, of course, uh, you know, technology itself 
um, and uh, you know the the opening of the entire, or not quite the entire, but much of the global financial system is going to make that very difficult. And by the way, of course, that's this is also an area where there simply has to be cooperation between states, um, because otherwise, clearly, the money will just you know move from place to place. Um, this, this will be a, a very interesting test of the, the power of states um, to, to, to achieve anything. I might be uh, sound somewhat contrarian, but I don't think that uh, the real economic problem of the future uh, will be an economic uh, rift between China and the United States. I think there'll be accommodation, gradual, painful, uh, difficult, uh, precarious accommodation, but it will take place. Uh, maybe uh, in our lifespan, we'll see some kind of uh, peaceful coexistence with an extensive economic interaction between the two. Uh, frankly, I'm much more concerned if we're looking into uh, into more distant future. I'm much more concerned about uh, a different rift, a rift between the uh, North and the South. I think that we are just in the very beginning of this rift. Uh, I think uh, it is uh, getting deeper and deeper uh, with uh, every decade. Uh, I don't think that uh, you can resolve this uh, problem without a very major redistribution of uh, global wealth uh, from the north to the south. I don't think that it will happen, and uh, I'm afraid uh, uh, that uh, uh, we will we will uh, we will face a real problem. Uh, maybe close to the middle of the uh, century, when uh, this inequality, economic inequality, uh, will become the dominant geopolitical uh, problem for all of us. Yeah, I think, uh, Andre, uh, at the end of our conversation, opened up an extremely important issue, uh, because uh, a real problem with nationalism uh, is ahead of us when uh, those masses from uh, the south uh, will be forced to act much uh, much more aggressively, forced by uh, objective circumstances, partially uh, climate change and 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 other problems uh, in in that part of the world, but also uh, what is happening. Uh, this is. Uh, uh, metaphorically speaking, a revenge of the South uh, against the North for colonization in the 19th and 20th century. And this anti-racism and anti-slavery stuff is just the beginning, because uh, it's a particular American problem, but if we take the whole uh, Northern Hemisphere, then of course uh, there are a lot of uh, nations and people uh, in the South who have some uh, ideas that uh, the North uh, has much to pay. And uh, to a certain extent, Russia is different than um, uh, Western Europe or United States in this regard, but uh, will certainly face uh, uh, its own problems of this sort, uh, maybe in 10, 10 years, 15 years time, when migration will grow from the former Soviet Union's uh, periphery, and I, I, I guess that we will have in, in, in different form, in our form, but uh, same uh, trouble uh, as uh, Europeans, for example, have now with uh, those who come from former colonies. Again, it's not parallel. I think there's a profound difference between colonialism in the West and, and Russian, Russian imperialism, but still. Yeah, we can uh, be uh, we 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 can face uh, similar problems. Before we wrap up, uh, does anybody have any final comments they'd like to make? Just just that I I agree very much on on the last point. Um, the both mass migration and the demands that it will make. Um, I mean, a very interesting first test will be, you know, what happens in the U.S. elections. Um, I don't expect um, uh, Trump to win, uh, but it'll be interesting to look at the opinion polls and see, you know, what the impact of the latest anti, you know, anti-racism measures have been, and wh whether in fact this has won many whites over, uh, or whether it has uh, it, it has alienated them. But certainly, uh, I can see the potential for, you know, much stronger nationalist backlashes 
in Western Europe and North America than you know anything we've seen so far. Well, let me say that I'm not very optimistic about the immediate future, uh, but I do hope uh, that uh, the generational change uh, in the United States, uh, in Europe, in Russia, in many other countries uh, will make a difference. Uh, and uh, I'm not uh, implying that uh, you know this particular election in the United States uh, uh, will be critically important, but maybe the election of uh, 2024 uh, maybe some changes uh, in, in Europe, uh, changes in Russia, will make us a little bit more optimistic about the future. Yeah, 2024 certainly will be a very important year, not only for the United States, but also for Russia. But um, uh, between today and 2024, I feel uh, so much will happen. <laughs> that the optimism is a little bit distant uh, from me. You've been listening to Geopolitics on the Move. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russian Global Affairs, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The theme music is focused by A.A. Alto. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye. Bye.